0: I'm really excited in this podcast to talk to Cade Metz, who's a New York Times journalist and the author of Genius Makers. It's a fascinating look at how the likes of Google, Apple, Facebook and Baidu have pioneered the AI industry and where they might be taking it. This is Cade Metz on the Tech Seeking Human podcast. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Tech Seeking Human podcast. Today, we are joined by New York Times journalist and now published author of Genius Makers, Cade Metz. Cade, welcome to the podcast. Glad to be here. What a brilliant book. This book, Genius Makers, is a little bit of a history lesson into like how AI has evolved, how big tech is adopting the AI. And I was on a roller coaster throughout by like going, I'm very excited by AI. And then all of a sudden I'm like, oh my God, is it gonna wipe out humanity? And then I'm back again and swings and roundabouts in thinking between like, is Facebook good or is Facebook evil and how are they using AI? It's a great book. How's the promotion been going?
1: Well, thank you, first of all, and and it's been going well and it's great to hear Uh, people like you say that about it. You know, what I want to do with the book, um, and spend a lot of years trying to do this, is show people the reality of what has happened. Um, There has been a lot of progress, and and I wanted to show that uh, in the book. At the same time, that progress brings problems. Uh, The world is complicated. People are complicated. Giant tech companies are complicated. And if you weave all that together um all that gets more complicated still and what i wanted to do is in in a in an accurate um but also dramatic because the story in reality was dramatic way uh, show people all of that and then allow them to reach their own conclusions and one of the things i've loved about the promotion of the book as i talk to people like you and other people who have read it is they They tend to bring their own opinions Mm. uh, to it. They tend to see what they wanna see in some ways in the story. And I think that's a good thing. Um, This is something that is affecting all of our lives on a daily basis. That's gonna be more and more true in the years to come. All of us need to start thinking about this and and what we think uh, and whether or not we should put pressure on governments and companies who are building this stuff. So um that's that's all what I like to hear. So thank you. Gee,
0: Claire, me bringing uh some opinion to a particular topic, how unusual. <laughs> oh
2: gosh, watch out, Kate.
0: <laughs> um so Kate, maybe okay, let's go there then, because a lot of the AI thought leaders and a lot of people we've interviewed have said the media is evil. And um, is this like your conscience where you're like, actually I wanna write a factual account of what's been going on? And for those people that haven't read the book yet. It really goes back in history into the very start of AI and these thought leaders and then sort of takes us on this journey of like how have little AI labs progressed, how they developed the technology and then how big tech essentially swallowed them up and then evolved the technology and where it went from there. So why don't you take us on a little bit of a, firstly you can answer the question about AI being, uh, journalists being evil, um, which I'm sure you'll love.
1: Well, I, I get told I'm I'm evil in 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 certain terms um, pretty often, right? It's a, you know it's, a, it's sort of a common thing. I think there's a lot going on there though. What I will say is that the press does not cover this area well, um, yeah. and you know that's just a reality that people don't understand what has happened. They don't understand the technology. They get told so much from various companies that is just not. Um, close to the reality and they take it in and then they and they regurgitate it. And it's no surprise that the average person does not understand what's going on because the press as a whole doesn't understand what's going on. And that's one of the things I want to do with the book is level set and show people the reality, like I said. The other thing is that everyone wants their view of the situation to be promoted by the press. So if you're Max Tegmark, he has a very particular view about AI and where it's going. And, um, you know, I, I like Max a lot. I don't want to, you know, get inside his head, but there are a lot of people who have those opinions. They talk to the press. They get angry if the person they talk to doesn't focus on their particular point of view and promote it. And I'm speaking in broad strokes here, but that's that's just the reality. You know, when you talk to Google, Google wants you to voice their particular point of view and then Facebook the next day wants you to promote theirs. And what I really believe is that is not my job. My job is to talk to Max and then talk to Facebook and then talk to Google and talk to everybody else, individuals, companies, uh, insiders, outsiders, people who have been there in the past, people who weren't and can bring a new perspective. Then once I talk to all those people, I can lay out uh, a careful and measured story or a careful and measured book about the entire landscape. Some people are not going to like me bringing up certain things. They're not going to like me voicing, you know, through different characters certain opinions. But as you as you point out, this book does it all. Um, You know. Some people are going to take issue with that. Some people have. Uh, They want uh, particular points of view um, ratcheted up or toned down. Um, That's not my aim. My aim is to put it all in there and give you um, as firm a view as possible as I can of the entire landscape.
0: There's a little bit of smoke and mirrors about this AI and you mentioned this a couple of times in the book as well where, you know, one of the most recent examples was at the Google I.O. conference where the voice assistant rang the hairdresser and everyone would immediately go, and and if if anyone hasn't seen this, basically the the voice assistant makes the booking for a haircut and also does it for a restaurant, right, and has a human-like conversation. And in the first part, you go, oh my God, this is amazing. AI is now smarter than humans and it's going to take over the world and we're made redundant because it can do all these things. And then it's like, no, actually, it can only do that very specific task and the machine is only as smart as that. So there's a bit of branding and a bit of smoke and mirrors and it's not just Google, it's done it, Facebook's done it. You know, they've done it with the driverless cars, they've done it all over the place. And what the book did for me was it level set it a little bit about the people behind the AI, their thinking behind what they're doing And that ai isn't about being evil ai is actually about assisting the business models of the tech companies and in some cases there are very ethical scientists behind the ai that are also trying to do not just for the tech companies but a little broader out into medical research um and other and and even policing and criminal and things like that and so for me the perception of the tech companies changed
1: Yeah, I I see what you're saying about those two different threads, right? On the one hand, you have companies who are driven by a profit motive. They want to put this technology out to further their own aims. On the other hand, you've got these characters in the book, these scientists who have worked on these ideas for decades. They're idealists. Um, Hmm. They do have a very particular idea of how their technology uh, should be used. I think you're definitely right there. But what I would also argue is the book is about, in many cases, the clash between those two Mm -hmm. things, right? You have these people who really worked on a single idea, and that's the key thread of the book, which we can go into. There's this one idea that these very few people have worked on for decades, and they had a very firm idea of how it should be used, but it never worked, this idea. Then it starts to work in 2010, 2012, and then the big companies notice and they suck these people into their machinery, right? It was almost instant and what you found in the years following that is that the ideals of these people sometimes clashed with what the companies wanted to do um, and you also find that these technologies have unintended consequences that these people who have been working on it for years as well as the companies who are relatively new to this idea didn't realize that it would do certain things they didn't necessarily want it to do. Um, that's the real tension in the book there is when you have these, this clash uh, of ideals or the, this clash of aims. Um, and that's to me where it gets really interesting. All those things we're gonna continue to have to deal with in the years to come as a society where we have those clashes.
0: Yeah, are there one or two characters that stand out for you that you go, this was the most important figure and the best example of um, of, you know, an idealist scientist working within a tech company.
1: You know, there are a lot of characters in this book. And and you're right. I weave their stories together um, throughout this sort of 50 year history, which is mostly focused on the last 10 years. But there's one guy who is central to that whole story over that 50 years. And it's a guy named Jeff Hinton, who was uh, born in Britain just after the war ended up moving to the United States. And he seized on this idea I've been talking about, an idea called a neural network in 1971, when he was a graduate student, at a time when most of the world, most of the AI community, as it stood then, did not believe in, right? They did not believe in this idea. At that moment, when it was not the cool thing to do to embrace this, he embraced it and he never let go. Over the next 50 years, he continued to work on this one idea, believing it would eventually fulfill its promise. And then around 2010, in large part because of him, it did. And there's this moment that the book begins with, uh, with Jeff Hinton and two of his students. The book had to begin there. It's this culmination of all that work over the decades when the technology finally starts to work. And then the industry meaning Google and Microsoft and Baidu in China one of the largest internet companies in the world they wake up to this and they go after Hinton. Uh, the book had to begin there it was an easy place to start and by go
0: after them you mean like uh, want to buy his services his IP
1: his company right they're in a bidding war yeah that's one of the the fascinating things here is that Jeff Hinton and his two students uh, achieved this very important technical breakthrough. They showed that this idea I've been talking about, a neural network, and we can talk about what that is, but they showed that it could recognize objects in photos like cars and dogs and flowers with an accuracy that no other technology had ever achieved. Um, It was far beyond uh, what any technology had ever achieved. Jeff Hinton and his two students didn't just realize this technically. He he realized that the tech giants of the world would be inordinately interested in this this technology. And he literally auctioned himself off to the highest bidder. And that's where the book begins. He and his two students are in Lake Tahoe uh, in the United States. And they auction their services off to the highest bidder and the bidders are three giant internet companies and one very small, but what will become very important AI lab called DeepMind based in London. And that's where the story begins. And you see the price of Jeff's services and the services Mm. of his two students, three people who had never worked in industry, you see their price go up and up and up into the millions. And it set the price, not only for these three people, but for the other few people who specialized in this technology. And you saw um, that small community, like I said, get sucked into industry and they were often paid millions to join. This was a bidding war over, like
0: bids came in every hour or every half an hour through email
1: and it went on for days. Is that normal? That is not normal. I, I have not, I spent years working on this. I have not found a precedent for it. Uh, I have not found an example that has happened since. Um, this is all Jeff Hinton's doing. He was urged on by his two students, his two graduate students at the University of Toronto. But he talked to a lawyer uh, who he knew and he wanted to maximize uh, his price. And that is what they settled on is this auction model and it was very simple he just said okay um the four of you um can bid whatever you want um th- the bid the latest bid has to come in within an hour if you want to raise it you've got to raise it by at least a million dollars and he thought he would make a few million he ended up making 44 million but the punchline is that he stopped the auction right mm. the the price was still going up and he stopped it um because of that In part that idealism we talked about right he had certain ideas for how he wanted to use this technology, where he wanted to continue to develop it. He chose one of these companies. uh, In the end, not because of the price, but because that was where he wanted to go, who won the auction. In the end, it was Google and Baidu, the Chinese giant who were bidding back and forth as the price went up and up and up and. Jeff paused the auction auction one night um, uh, as he did each night and that night he decided that he would go with Google even though the price was still going up.
0: Correct me if I'm wrong, but he selected Google basically a little bit had to do with culture and what he thought maybe from an ethical point of view or maybe he could further his research best with them. Now this wasn't the first time I don't think that Google eventually gets pitted off against Facebook in a bidding war and a similar scenario plays out. I think this was for, was it for DeepMind out of the UK? Just give us a little bit of background history as to what was happening
1: in that particular
0: bidding war. And I found the reasons for selecting Google fascinating.
1: Again, this gets back to that idealism we've been talking about in these researchers. So you have this this group of people in London, uh, led by a guy named Demis Hassabis, who was a neuroscientist and a chess prodigy. As a 13 year old, he was the second uh, highest ranked under 14 chess player in the world. And uh, for various other reasons, some people consider him the greatest games player of all time as you as you learn in the book. But he and two other people who we met at University College London um, in a neuroscience and AI program, by the way, which was founded by Jeff Hinton like I said, it's this tiny group of people. So you've got mm-hmm. Jeff, who's been working on this for decades. He ends up at the University of Toronto, and you have a center of gravity for this uh, for this community there in Canada. He leaves at one point, moment, you know, just just for a few years to go back to London. He founds this this AI group at University College London, uh, which eventually produces this group uh, that founds this London lab called DeepMind. DeepMind, like I said, was in the bidding for Jeff's company. Uh, At the time, no one knew who they were. They were a tiny startup, but they had seen the importance of this technology um, much as Jeff had, and they started to buy up talent in this area, even before this moment when Jeff has his auction. So they, they controlled a lot of the talent that had become so valuable for the industry, and it got to the point where Demis and his co-founders realized they had to sell themselves. Otherwise they were going to die. Uh, The talent they had was so valuable. They didn't have enough money to hang on to it. They knew that these giant tech companies would come in and just take their talent and they realized they had to, they had to sell themselves. Now Google wanted to buy them and so did Facebook. And in the end they went with Google because it met these two conditions that they wanted met. They wanted wanted an assurance that their their technology would not be used for military purposes. And they wanted whoever bought them to put this independent board in place, a board of experts um, who would oversee the eventual creation of their technology and make sure it was used in an ethical way. Again, these are idealistic people mm. who, who really um, have firm beliefs on how their technology should be used. And they wanted that baked into their contract with the company that bought them. And that's one of the very big reasons they went with Google. Because
0: they believed that potentially they were developing something that could surpass human intelligence and it could become a risk to humanity. Is that fair that's what these guys are in the
1: development that's what they're thinking that is completely fair the the lab was founded uh, with the stated mission that they would build what they call agi artificial general intelligence and that is a machine that can do anything the brain can do and that's another thread in my book that you have this subset of people uh, who believe in that very, very enormous idea um, and are still going after that. And that idea is so big that when people say that, you need to step back and, and not necessarily take it at face value. Uh, it's just ridiculously ambitious, but that that is their ambition. And yes, they do believe that in developing this technology, um, scientists could um, build something that could turn on humanity so to speak and end up destroying the world um, that's how they think about this and that may seem contradictory but the way they basically see it is that it, it's better for them to build this technology knowing that it could go wrong as opposed to someone else um, who doesn't see the danger um, but but i do want to make it clear there they're looking potentially decades down the road. A lot of scientists believe um, that sort of technology is a long way off if it ever arrives at all. But that is absolutely what they are trying to do.
0: Well, it depends who you ask when it comes to that particular point. But um, would you rather, this is a question then for like the audience, right? Because at this moment in the book, I have one of those, oh my God moments where I go, here's a group that are potentially thinking they've developed an AI that could surpass human intelligence. Do you want to give control of that to Google or
1: do you want to give control of that to Facebook? That's basically the situation. Except I would add they haven't developed it yet, right? Not they yet. have a belief that they will. And I think that's key. You know, the the chapter um, that really goes into this idea is called religion in my book, right? It's about this belief that this can be built. Uh, they certainly believe it. If you spend enough time, uh, with Demis, um, and, and his co-founders, this is something, um, that they, they really do believe in. And in believing that, yes, they want an assurance, um, that when they build this technology, that it will be treated, um, in, in, in an ethical way. Um, and as they build other technologies, um, you know, on the path to that goal, they don't want it being used for military purposes, which mm-hmm. which comes up um, almost instantly in in a very big and dramatic way. How so?
0: Because I did read that part, right, where Google started working with the military, and I had very
1: specific thoughts about that. Yeah, again, um, you know, I talked about the the clash of uh, of company and individual, right? And here, I want to go back to Jeff Hinton. Because it really underlines what went on there. Jeff Hinton, um, like I said, embraced this idea, which has become so important um, to all these technologies. Um, it's called a neural network in the early '70s, and he continues to work on this o- over the decades. And really quickly, let's just explain what that is, yeah. um, so people know, you know, uh, you know how this played out. A neural network is a mathematical system. That can learn skills by analyzing data. So, the example I always give is if you take thousands of cat photos and you feed that into a neural network, it analyzes those photos and it identifies the patterns that define what a cat looks like. Okay. In that way, it literally learns to identify a cat. And that's an idea that dates back to the 40s and the 50s and in the 50s as you learn in the book, it could learn um, a very simple task. It could learn to identify a printed letter A or a printed letter B or other or other letters but that's all it could do. And once it failed to move beyond that, the community uh, the AI community thought the idea uh, would never work. Uh, they really gave up on it. But like I said, Hinton embraced it. And he thought that same idea one day would identify objects in photos and identify spoken words and and understand the nuances of of natural language, the natural way we talk. Um, As it turns out, that technology was missing a, a piece, a mathematical piece. And Jeff, along with some collaborators, found that missing mathematical piece in the 80s. And he reached this point where where the, there was a lot of optimism again around this, this idea in the 80s. And at that moment, he left the country. He was in, in Pittsburgh at Carnegie Mellon in the United States. And he left the country because he realized that the only way to continue working on this technology was to take money from the US military. And he did not want to do that. His wife didn't want him to do that. And they literally left the country. Um, to avoid taking money from Ronald Reagan's Defense Department. That shows you his idealism, okay? Well, another 20 years pass and the idea then finally starts to work um, when he and his students show that they can use this technology to build a system that can identify objects and images. And he's immediately sucked into Google as you learn in the first pages of the book. And not too long after that, Google took that technology and went to work with the military. And you see this play out in real time um, at the company where a lot of people realized this was happening and got very, very concerned. Um, And, you know, you look at this through Jeff, but also through other people um, who did not want, you know, the company that they were working for um, to apply this technology to military use. Um, and that's the type of clash uh, that I'm talking about. And it's ongoing. It's it's ongoing right this is a what this is essentially is a path towards autonomous weapons and that's what people um, a lot of people in the field are concerned about that right now we use this technology to identify objects in drone footage so buildings and cars and people uh, that can be a means of surveillance but It's also a way of identifying targets and that can be used in various ways. But one way it can be used is you put a weapon on your drone, you identify the target and you fire, right? So there's, there's a long path to that end, but the path is there and that's what people seek, um, seek to avoid or or express a lot of concern over these technologies will slowly lead to, to autonomous weapons. They want a human in the loop. They don't want machines making those decisions. And um, so you know, it's, it's an example of how the technology is progressing towards an end that a lot of people don't want.
0: Yeah, and you touch on Baidu a little bit in the book um, and you also, there wasn't a huge reference to China but the one thing that I took away and and I don't have an opinion on this per se but, but a lot of people would fear this. In the Google scenario, it was the employee uprising that basically terminated the contract with Department of Defense. And you could understand that this could happen at any one of those tech companies where the employee's opinions make a difference and obviously the media grabs hold of it and then all of a sudden the Department of Defense is left with very little access to the smartest minds in America, culturally that probably wouldn't happen in China. Um, therefore, is there a an element? You, you kind of get where I'm going with this, right? And I don't want to be politically insensitive in any way, but I want to paint the picture that culturally
1: it's very different. I don't think you're being insensitive, and and you know the book explores this phenomenon. That um, you're right. You had the situation in the U.S where in some ways, the talent in this area is separated from the government. What happened, like I said, is the talent moved into these giant tech companies, the private sector. And as the technology progressed, the government does not have access to that talent. They don't have access to the latest technology, which is so important china works very differently there is a closeness between government and industry Um, and so you're right the you're not gonna necessarily have that separation and a lot of people in the u.s today are concerned about that separation in the u.s Uh, eric schmidt uh, the former ceo of google who's a big character in the book right he shows up in china and kind of um, helps illustrate this very point that you're talking about He has been very concerned about this. He just delivered a report uh, to President Biden and Congress here in the United States Mm. advising the U.S. government on what it needs to do um, to help shrink that gap. Um, For instance, one of the things they want to do is establish basically like a national university for AI researchers, like a West Point uh, for digital services, they call it, where in the long run, the... The government can educate the people who are needed in this all important field, Um, there are other ways they seek to improve in improve funding for universities and government labs to try to to level up uh, the government in this respect.
0: yeah and I think maybe I mean part of our research and who we've been talking to is. AI is borderless. Like this is beyond countries now. This is like, we don't need a national university. We need an International. international university. And I think you touched on some really good points in the book about the importance of diversity. You know, a lot of the things, a lot of these neural networks, you said they've been trained on data. They've also been designed by very smart white men, which meant that there were diversity issues that came through throughout in the output of these AIs. And I just think the more open we can be. That's another element that came through the book actually is the openness of like open AI and also Google publishing all of their um, AI research as part of it and not keeping it to themselves. Do, don't, don't you think, I guess we need to be in the ideal world if we're all idealists, that this is an open AI international forum for the safety of humanity?
1: Well, it, it is. You, you're you exactly right in that it is very much a global technological revolution and it's that is driven in part by the idealism of Jeff Hinton and others these academics who always publish their work in an open way when they moved into the, in the industry they wanted to continue publishing in that way that was a stipulation of many of these researchers it really changed the way the Googles uh, of the world operated in the past, Google did not openly publish with a lot of its important technologies. It kept them close to its chest. Um, in the AI field in the years to come, they like everyone else in the industry started open, openly publishing uh, their latest results um, in this field. And what that meant was that the technology was available to everyone on earth. Um, the latest results are available in China, as well as the US, as well as in, in Europe. Um, so there is this space race or arms race, as you call it, um, between various countries, but the way to deal with that is different than people um, might expect, the way that regulators um, or government officials might, might expect. Um, this isn't a situation where you know, the US has a technology, it's building it behind closed doors, it can't mm-hmm. let um, uh, rival countries in. Um, it's a very different situation where the currency is not um, uh, the latest development, the currency is the talent and the data needed to train these systems. Um, and, and the processing power, the computer processing power needed to crunch all that data. Those are the three things that you need um china you know has access to the data in spades right and um and and the processing power and they have the will to do this with a large population they can produce a lot of the talent um, needed um uh to to develop this type of technology um we need when we think about this space race and competing we need to think about it differently you can't um, just shut down your borders um, for instance uh, and not allow exports Uh, That's not going to affect things. It may end up hurting you. Um, You can't say we're not going to allow Chinese researchers into the country. The U.S. actually relies on immigrant researchers, including uh, Chinese researchers. It's a big part of what has happened um, in this field. You see this in the book. All these scientists who flooded into um, these American companies, or so many of these scientists, were immigrants Yep. Most of that talent was not in the U.S. It was elsewhere, and it came in. Um, so, if the U.S. Um, you know tries tries to shut down its borders to that immigrant talent, it's only hurting itself. It's a complicated um, new age space race. I wonder what the general public is feeling when it comes to AI,
0: because I read the book and it changed my perception. So I can only really speak for myself because I went from they're trying to manipulate, I'm scared about, I'm a little bit scared about this. And I'm a technologist, which is crazy. And I have every number of fitness tracking things you can possibly get. So I'm actually not worried about the data per se. Um, I just worry about the ethics of some of the companies. But you changed my mind significantly in that the AI and what these companies are trying to do is very much assist humans to do the things that we want to do, whether it's Assist in medical research through being able to scan MRIs better than humans can possibly do it. Clean up social networks. There was a great example. Like, there was one part of the book where, you know, Facebook basically, over a long period of time, clearly has learned the lesson that they need to take control of their own platform. And they see a future of an AI being able to do that. But there was one powerful moment in the book where they talk about, you know, they're using AI to clean up people that are, you know, domestic violence or, or violence and animal cruelty and and pornogra- uh, pornography. Um, but there was one part in the book that was really powerful where one of the Facebook tech, li- why don't you actually share with it, if I let you tell the story, it related to the Christchurch um, massacre. And, and that part for me was chilling.
1: Yeah. Yeah you're right ai can be used in this ways to a certain in this way to a certain extent to help remove that toxic content from a social network but it also that situation is a way of showing the limits of this technology it's not as perfect uh, as people might think mm-hmm. it's not uh, to the point where it can it can mimic everything that we humans uh, can do uh, there are limits uh, to that effort at Facebook to identify all that content, and you're right. That Christchurch um, shooting, um, uh, you know, there was a there was a shooting at two two mosques in Christchurch that was live streamed on Facebook. That's not something that. Um, that the AI could recognize in the moment. Um, As much as Facebook claims it's building technology that can recognize those things in the moment, it's a very hard thing to do. And one of the ways to think about this is that we as humans often struggle to identify toxic content or agree on What is toxic and what is not, right? The notion of fake news in many ways is a matter of opinion. What is and what is not hate speech is a matter of opinion. And if we humans have trouble uh, identifying hate speech and removing it, how are we going to build systems, machines that do that? Um, What you see throughout the book is that this effort to build machines to do whatever task it might be ends up being a reflection uh, of us humans and a reflection of our flaws, right? You brought up the bias issue. Uh, We are biased people. Um, We spew hate speech. And what you see is that the technology we have built has those same flaws um, because it's learning from the data that we produced, right? These systems are learning from internet data. We produced that data. You know, when we train it for face recognition, we supply the photos that you feed into that neural network where it learns to identify a face. If we make the mistake of only uh, providing the faces of white men, for instance, it's gonna be better identifying white men than women or people of color. That's another issue that that came up. And that's what fascinates me. We tend to think about machines as these um, systems that are somehow perfect more perfect than us, that can solve our problems that we've never been able to solve. But in the end, they're, they're a reflection of us um, and, and they're flawed uh, in the ways that we are. Um, that, that's you know, that's a, a thing all of us really need
0: to understand. Claire's dying to ask this question about what Elon Musk is doing. Oh yeah,
2: I am. Um, because it was recently in the news and then I saw it was in your book as well about Neuralink and how they're putting the chip microchip into the chimps. And then he's saying, I think that it could be end of 22 or 25, that it would be for humans. That That's where the scaremongering sort of can happen, I guess, in terms of what's projected in the media. I was just wondering what your thoughts were on that side of things.
1: Yeah, I'm glad that you bring that up because you know when you hear Elon Musk say something, when you read, uh, about what he has said in the press, it is so easy to just take it at face value. Uh, it's so easy to assume that he knows more than you do. And that um, when he says self-driving cars will be here by 2020, or he says you know, that at a certain date, he's gonna put a chip in your brain, um, you just tend to believe him. But if you step back as I do in the book and really look at what's going on, um, you realize that he makes these promises all the time and they don't necessarily come true. And you know, the, the chip in the brain is a really good example, right? It's so easy to say, you know, I think that we need an interface between our brains and our phones and I'm going to do it. It's so easy to say that. The reality is something different. Um, Talk to any doctor who has performed brain surgery, which this would involve, you know, opening up the skull and putting the chip in, that is incredibly dangerous, but he wants to cross that chasm, right? Um, And just put this chip in there so we can have a, you know, what he calls, you know, better bandwidth between uh, our (laughs) phones and our brains. You know, is that something we want to do? But like, this applies to so many things. You're right. Like we, to get back to the AGI idea, it's the same sort of thing. It's so easy to say that i'm going to build a system that can do anything the human brain can do the reality when it comes to actually doing that um that is so enormously difficult and it b- does bring so many problems potentially
2: the general public grasp onto those headlines as i did and then when i read your book i was just like oh it's just you know it's it's taking what's happening really for now and also the perspective of the researchers and the, the ethics behind what that, you know, the idealists. And it's so reassuring.
0: Everyone so, should read it. Yeah, Everyone needs I really to read it. Don't should. read the headlines of like yeah. Elon Musk. Read the actual book and get the facts. When you wrote the book, did it change your perceptions? Was there anything that you took away after you did all this research and you finished the book that you went,
1: huh? Well, what I will say is that my perceptions... Change constantly. The more um, I learn about the people involved, the more I learn about the companies involved, um, the more I learn about the technology. Um, you know, I am constantly, um, you know, level setting, um, and uh, it's interesting. Um, you know how much has changed. Um, over the past several years when it comes to this stuff and you could see a lot of that change happen but a lot of it even for people in the field was unexpected and you know you you have to constantly um kind of update your own thinking and you have to constantly think about you know what's happening and where this is this is going and um you know the more i do this the better idea i get and um you know i think the trick is to sort of convey that uh, to everyone whether it's in in the new york times or with a book like this
0: well you've left yourself open for a sequel that's for sure yeah this
1: is not going to stop right this is going to keep going and uh, all the trends that you see playing out in the book they've continued to play out since i published it it's it's fascinating yeah. how um, just the the same things that i talk about in the book will have played out in slightly different ways sometimes with different companies but all the threads um, that I dealt with there have continued to play out.
0: Kate, it's a fascinating book. it's a, a real page turner. Um, I encourage everyone to to read it if they want to hear about you know how this AI has evolved, its limitations, the technology companies the behind it and education like you're saying and it It's done the same thing. It's the analogy of like you go to buy a car and then all of a sudden you see that car on the road everywhere. It's like you're more aware of the research now. You also can question
1: the media a little bit and we should, right? Absolutely. You should question everyone. Everything should be approached with skepticism, right? That's the only way to do it.
0: I hate when I do this. I'm supposed to wrap it, but (laughs) I'm not going to because I'm going to ask this one last question. (laughs) You have to finish this sentence. AI will
1: dot 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 what it will definitely do is it will continue to advance what we call natural language understanding so we're heading towards a world where machines can really carry on a conversation a a turn-by-turn conversation which is has been a goal of the ai field since the 50s there's real progress there there's real progress in the robotics field Uh, When it comes to robots, uh, learning tasks in much the same way we we described other types of systems, learning tasks. That's been um, uh, another area of progress. Drug discovery, you mentioned healthcare. Mm. We're seeing real progress when it comes to uh, these systems helping us develop new medicines or reuse existing medicines um, that have already been approved for one condition. And maybe you can apply them to another and anyone who's lived over the through the past year knows the importance of both those things right the hope based really on a, on a result out of Deep Mind, that London lab we talked about in the fall points towards a world where when the next pandemic comes around we can with greater speed not only build a vaccine but identify the medicines that have already been approved for use in humans and repurpose them um, that's um, what we're um, what we're what we're seeing now. We have a long way to go, um, but that's where this technology is pointing.
0: I love it. What a fam- awesome answer. AI. that's going to assist humans. It's going to help us automate more. So hopefully, we can do the things that we really want to focus on. It's a really good theme. Cade, thank you so much. Fascinating read. Loved having a conversation with you. Thanks for being on the podcast.
1: I enjoyed it too. Thank you.